This is the Adoptive Mom Podcast. Adoption may look different for each family, but we need solidarity from other crazy people who took this leap. And that is what we do here. We encourage, we build up, we share the wins and losses. We lean on each other and we get through this together. Thanks for joining us. Welcome to the Adoptive Mom Podcast. I am Alex Fitton, and I have the incredible privilege to be in your eardrums every single week with messages of hope and encouragement and solidarity and just all the things. You can find me on Facebook as Alex Fitton and the Adoptive Mom Podcast and on Instagram at the Adoptive Mom. You are listening to episode nine of season six, episode 87 overall. You guys, we are adding a member to a very exclusive club here at the Adoptive Mom Podcast, and that is the Dude Guest Club. I am joined today by Bobby Reeves, a social worker and a personal friend of mine and a man with an incredibly hard story and an incredible path to redemption and wholeness that he is going to share with us today. More specifically, we're going to be talking about how kids from hard places and the adults they grow to be use humor to deflect and mask the pain that they hide inside of them. This is a heavy topic, but it's one that we mamas need to hear as we seek to understand our kids better and therefore grace ourselves to not always have to get it right. It's going to rock and I cannot wait. Usually, this is where I give you guys some sort of call to action or remind you of something we have going on, but today... I just want to make sure you guys know how much I love y'all and how grateful I am for every single download and every single message I get or every single review I read or Patreon supporter that jumps on this bandwagon we have all created together. This is a crazy time and I am drowning just like all of you probably are, but knowing the support that is surrounding this little collective of ours gives me hope day after day. So thank you. And with all of that sap, let's go hear from Bobby Reeves. All right. Welcome, you guys, to the Adoptive Mom Podcast. And big welcome to Mr. William Bobby Reeves, who is in studio with me, which is super cool. So hello, Bobby. Hey, hey. thanks for having me. Uh, yeah. So really quick, though, fun fact about you. Your name is literally Billy Bob. Real life. Which is hilarious. Yeah, it's great. It's enjoyable to be a friend of yours. Though. It's great yeah. that nobody really picks up on that until <laughs> after we have several conversations and they go, your first name is William, second name is Bob. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah, welcome to Arkansas. Real life Billy Bob. <laughs> All right. So yeah, Bobby Reeves, mm-hmm. welcome to the show. Um, tell us a little bit about yourself. Give us a like a you know, real quick rundown on who you are. A rundown. Yeah, Can we give down. office jokes here? Oh, absolutely. Okay. Can you give me this rundown? So anyway. I think of Jim and I'm gonna proofread and the rundown. Yeah. Right. No, I, I'm tracking. Okay. This rundown be, be <laughs> I love really how good. I'm Idris Elba in this scenario. I don't know who that is. <laughs> That's Charles. Oh, oh yes, the most Minor. handsome guy, right? Barely know her, anyway. Right. Yes. Sorry. It's all good. Brian will have to cut all this out in a little bit. <laughs> so yeah, my name's Bobby Reeves. Um, let's see. I'm born and raised in Northwest Arkansas. Mm-hmm. Um, Rogers native, I guess. Now I live in Fayetteville, which is wonderful. Um, gosh. Married to Meredith. Oh yeah. So oh, I've yeah. been married to my wonderful wife Meredith for five years now, which is. Equally as terrifying to to say and explain as it is to live as probably my spouse. It's just well, she's something like that I, really pretty too. Yeah, so right. I mean, no offense. She's but. got some new glasses, and she's just going to totally embarrass her to death. <laughs> but so I had to get glasses three weeks ago now, and I've never worn glasses ever. But she went to I guess now our <laughs> eye doctor, <laughs> and she got really really great glasses, yeah. and they look so good on her. They do look super cute. So yeah. You uh, you outkicked her coverage there. She's real pretty. I definitely did. I definitely did. And there are times where you come home from work and you're like, oh my gosh, I this is this is my life. Yeah, it's it's great. <laughs> it's great. No, I mean, not that marriage has been easy by any means, right. but yes, she's beautiful. She's wonderful. Wickedly talented, um, and a wonderful support for a wild guy like myself. So <laughs> yeah, she's great. Yeah, and so okay, you have no children, biological or adopted. None. Zero. So, 
uh, listeners, you're probably wondering why he's here. Don't worry. We will get to that. No but you kids. have fur babies. I do. Two precious fur babies as I eat the microphone. Yeah. Two precious, wonderful dogs that we love a yeah. lot. They're insane, but they're cute. Yeah. And so we adopted them ah. from like shelters and people on Facebook that didn't want them. So mm-hmm. it was really nice to... Yeah have that little tie of the adoptive mom podcast absolutely well and adoptions on you guys' radar for maybe in the future sometime maybe yeah i mean it's something we've talked about for sure right um okay but the reason that you're on the podcast which we're going to talk about in length um is that you so you don't have you know kids from hard places in your home but you like are all up in that work all day every day yes in lots of different ways like yeah Several different Wake arenas. till bed, basically. Mm, more or less. Yeah. So tell us about that. Um, so my job as an academic counselor for a TRIO program, and most folks don't know what that is, but a TRIO is... So there were three TRIO programs born out of the war on poverty in 65 from Lyndon B. Johnson's era on, or I guess thought on the war of poverty, right? Mm-hmm. So working with students that I work with, um, they are first generation college going students and they are low income. And... We help get them to to college or build the skills necessary to get them college access once they graduate high school. Um, and per the grant that we work for, stating that two-thirds must be first-gen and low-income, to me, that is, well, that's what I am. I'm a first-gen kid. I'm a low-income kid. And so when you work with students that come from diverse backgrounds, from low socioeconomic backgrounds, you typically have a lot of other extra kind of challenges or barriers that those children bring to you. Um, and then working with the benevolence ministry at the church that we go to, that gives me a whole nother light on working with all kinds of kinds that either are students or are um, parents to students. And so there's really not a shortage of working with that type of hard, hard population, whether it's my professional life or my Free time life, I guess, through the church, however you want to frame that. Yeah, free time. <laughs> mm, free time. Uh, speaking of which, so yeah, you do this on the weekends at church. Uh, then you do this in your day job. Then you go home and you're currently in social work grad school. So you do it at night as yes. well. So yes. free time, what's that? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it's a, it's a fantasy at this point. Basically, you're just like... I mean, super Jesus-y, right? No, not even close. Like super Christian over here. No, far, (laughs) far from it. Or at least I'm living what I believe is the best depiction of the way Christ lived. Yeah. And totally getting into the nastiest, most vile places of our community and not running from those people, but more or less being comfortable in that really uncomfortable space. And that's not to say that I don't find sometimes getting fear or like amped up. Or emotionally charged up walking into a hotel lobby waiting for a stranger to essentially show up. And we've only like maybe talked on the phone one time so I know where they live. Or they've texted me an address of where they can meet. Mm-hmm. Um, but I believe that doing this work is more gospel-centered and more gospel-focused than maybe some other really glamorous jobs that have the word pastor tied to the end of them. Right. Well, and I mean, I said that kind of in jest because it, it has to do with what we're going to be talking about. Um, which is that you're right. It doesn't feel glamorous. A lot of what we do, even as like foster and adoptive parents, uh, it may look glamorous, but it doesn't feel glamorous at all. Um, but even that, you know, we're, we're, we're the ones that get put on that pedestal a lot of the time, whether or not we ask for it and you don't. Which I know for someone like you, because I know you personally, that's not what you want at all. No, I don't want any of the credit or any of the light shined my direction at all. I don't like being the center of attention. I don't like having, you know, even you graciously asking me to do this. Um, I've even right now in this moment feel a little charged up emotionally because it's something that I'm way out of my comfort zone here. Mm -hmm. This is not something that I like to, I don't like the light. I don't like the attention. This is not... I didn't get into this business, quote, air quotes for those with the people that can't see what I'm doing. <laughs> um, it, this isn't about me. And yeah. This isn't about stroking my ego or making me feel more awesome. This yeah. is not at all about me. But I think that, I mean, that's exactly what we're talking about when we're talking about the hands and feet of Jesus, which is something that I, you know, it's a term I use a lot. Just that 
that's no small thing. And I think that we don't give ourselves credit for that a lot of the time as adopted parents, you know, we feel like we're just surviving and like we're doing a terrible job. Um, but you know, the reason that I wanted to talk to you specifically was because I, you know, I've known you for a long time Mm -hmm. and I've seen you, I feel like there are two very distinct Bobby Reeves eras that I've known you in, you know, good (laughs) at the time I didn't necessarily see it, but there was unhealthy Bobby Reeves. And then now I, you're like a one, like 180. That's the right. Yes, you're right? going one the direction and then, 180. Yeah, 180. Yep, that's 180. And you could even maybe say it's like 720 or multiple times of spinning Entertainment in a direction. Yes. Yeah, right. But going the opposite direction <laughs> in which you once knew me 10 years ago. Yeah, which, I mean, you're like a different person now. And I think that that, that healing journey is something that can really help us as adopted parents to hear about. But also um, something even more specifically to hone in on is specific coping slash defensive mechanisms that we use, um, when we're dealing with our own stuff, but you, like I said at the beginning, you know, you're, you're not having kids from hard places in your home necessarily, but you are a kid from hard places Yep, fact. dealing with kids from hard places. Sure. And as adoptive parents, I mean, that's what we do. A lot of the time it bubbles all of our crap to, to whatever extent that may be in our own lives to the surface. And we suddenly have to deal with it and we can either deal with it in a healthy way or an unhealthy way. So, you know, to start, just, can you give us some of your backstory? So I came from a single parent home. Um, we were low income home from what I know of as low income. Now I didn't know that then Mm -hmm. at the time I just thought we were poor and we were living hand to mouth and living paycheck to paycheck. And I knew that if I wanted new tennis shoes, I couldn't get them. And I had to wait like this magical time frame that my mom would pull out of the air and that would appease my need for something, right? Mm-hmm. So um, low income for a single parent and I have a younger sister and we're eight years apart. So we're kind of like only children um, when you look at it because right. I was eight when she was born. And then as I was going through the weird adolescence phase, she was still an infant. And then as she grew up into adolescence, I was out of the house. Um, and I spent a lot of my time out of the house from what I can remember. Mm-hmm. My house was, or my my home life as a child was it was it was it was it was riddled with wonderful moments and really hard moments and you know gaining and gleaning from the wisdom that I've gained now not that I'm old and have a ton of wisdom under my belt but I have some and like watching my mom through my my mind's eye at this age I know man she was doing the best she could with what she had yeah um she was given unfortunate circumstance um through her actions, through her words, through her, these are just consequences of her behavior. But also there were, there were several things that were stacked against her from early on. And yeah. so she brought that into parenting. And, you know, my, my parents were in their late 20s, I guess, when I was around. Um, so my parents have been married and divorced three different times to one another, Yes, which is interesting. So they were married and then they got divorced and then they got remarried and then I came on the scene and then they got divorced and then got remarried and then my sister shows up and now they are permanently divorced from one another forever. Not to say that they may not like being around one another, they just can't be married. And so that was my model of how to be a husband, how to be a father, how to be a support system for your spouse, how to handle conflict yeah. was in dysfunction, if I'm honest. And then the older I got, the more wild and rambunctious I was. A single mom just couldn't handle that. And she had basically an infant to a young child, almost adolescent, while I was growing up being eight years ahead. So I just I feel like I raised myself some, um, I think... I spent a lot of time at friends' home from what I can remember. Um, you know, like when you think of your brain being saturated in trauma, when it's saturated in, is it cortisol that, that gives us that like reward for yeah. okay. whatever? Or is that dopamine? I can't remember. One of those them, hormones. Yeah, I get them confused in my mind. Mm-hmm. But being in a very traumatic household, and I do know this, your brain is, is, is so saturated in that stress that that's how you survive and you're in you in like naturally I just I feel like I run at a very high RPM which makes sense knowing my past knowing right. the traumatic kind of life that I was exposed to as a child um so I, I was out of the house a lot a lot a lot yeah. I was on my bike I was around the neighborhood I was with friends 
I was playing all the road tracks. I did everything I could to stay out of my mom's house because we typically just fought. And this is, again, no like disrespect showing to her, but I didn't feel safe, and my body and my mind knew that. And I think with our primal instinct of security being so important, you flee from those insecure place or unsecure places. Right. So. Well, and this was pre so much research on trauma oh, and sure. on how our bodies respond to that. So, you know, a lot of this stuff that you've learned now that you're an adult, that wasn't around back then. You know, that no. wasn't something that you were handed. I mean, counseling was not a thing. Well, so. it, it was thought of as bad in my family. Right. And all this neuroscience that we have, you know, as I'm 32. And so that meant when I was growing up, that was you know, 25 years ago and there was a lot less neuroscience available mm-hmm. in the early 90s than there is now and I I was just trying to make ends meet then and now as an adult I we have that we mm-hmm. have that resource to look back and go oh man that makes so much sense why you would behave that way right and that kind of brings us to when I met you which is you know you're a barista and you were in college for social work so what made you choose that having you know I mean we talk about trauma triggers and it's interesting that there are people who flee like they don't want anything mm-hmm. to do with mm-hmm. what right might remind them and then there are people like you who who want to dive into that. And I, you know, there's a, that's a whole other podcast about the science behind the kind of people <laughs> sure. that flee and the kind of people that face it head on, but mm-hmm. you faced it head on. So what made you decide to do that? Ooh, I, I really, uh, to answer the question, honestly, I, I don't know what made me want to face it head on if I'm honest with you. Um, and I guess maybe up until this very moment, I'm not, re- I never really realized that that's more or less what I did. Um, I've, I've always just been like a, put your nose down at work and grind and go. And a lot of the anxious behavior that I display and that I kind of live in, I've, I never slow down. I never downshift. There's never, there's like two gears. There's me asleep and there's me as hard and as fast as I can get it. And when I was, when you first met me, oh my yeah, like 10 years ago, maybe. Yeah. yeah. Seven years ago when we were in the Horner community group, maybe even before then. Before, yeah, I was like nine years ago, nine or 10. So that was, you know, you have these awakenings, right? I was very much not woke yet. <laughs> yeah. I was very asleep. I don't know that that's a cute term. Now, like woke. All the kids say it nowadays if you're yeah. like highly understand what's happening around you. Um, I just did it. I just, in, in, my, in my story of like getting to social work started out, me just volunteering at a church when I was young with my dad, um, giving out Thanksgiving meals to, Mm -hmm. to families. And I loved the way that they responded out of such gratitude for what we were able to do. And I knew early on that I wanted to chase that feeling or I wanted to chase whatever that was, being able to meet that need and experiencing these families have something tangible whenever they came with nothing. Yeah. Um, and so I thought, well, this is what I want to do. Through um, also like whenever I was, before I started my college journey, playing in a band and touring around some and seeing and really meeting kind of the rough in the community because these venues that we played at were like in the worst parts of town because we were a nobody band and we did nothing glamorous, but we (laughs) thought we were cool and we had all the friends in the right places that could, we could kind of ride coattails. Right. Um, which was really fun for a time, but whenever you spend night after night for an extended period of time, not making any money, not knowing where your next meal is going to come from and literally spending every penny you have just to come home to go work at a job you hate, Mm -hmm. doesn't make sense. So seeing those people when we would travel around mixed with my time with my dad led my mind to say, I want to do this work. I want to find a way to work with the people in the community that the community is essentially turned their back on. Mm -hmm. And, and, shunned is kind of hard but i feel like there's a bit of that in the homeless population and you know i went when we met i was finally going to school to do something that i cared about and found a a passion wrapped around um but i was still very there were lots of me that was undiscovered because Mm -hmm. i was i was surviving again and growing up in the way that i did with you know a father that i saw on the weekends um 
and a mother that was trying to survive herself. And when her feet would hit the door at six o'clock every night, she didn't have any mental capacity to really, to what I felt like meet my needs. And I'm not saying that she didn't meet them. So don't hear that. But I felt like there were times where I was just in such a fractious environment that Mm -hmm. I never knew what type of mother I was getting when she would come home, whether she would be in a good mood or a bad mood. So anyway, those skills that I learned early on, I mean, between the ages of zero and three, that's where we're like at our most moldable. And then we take those and we run with that into adulthood. And when we met, I mean, I was just surviving Yeah. when I was making coffee drinks and cracking jokes and acting like everything was fine when I was literally drowning and didn't realize it. Right. Well, I think that, you know, that, that, that's a good segue into those coping skills that we're talking about because you're in so much of a healthier place now. Um, and I, I definitely want to hear about why and how and all of that. Um, but during those times when we're hurting, you know, everyone finds a coping mechanism and whether that be eating or binging TV or, I mean, whatever it is, uh, it's often unhealthy, mm-hmm. <laughs> no matter, yes. even if it's like healthy, unhealthy, you know, like eating loads of carbs is not healthy, but that's better than like drugs, drinking maybe? copious yeah. amounts of alcohol. Right. <laughs> there are some that are most socially acceptable. Right. But a lot of it, you know, and you, you look at, you look at comedians who have committed suicide and it's insane because those two things don't match up. When you look at them on paper, you're like funny, happiness, comedy, mm-hmm. bringing joy to people, but on the inside they're dying. Yes. And that was you, maybe not to the you know extent of <laughs> Right. <laughs> Mitch, what's his, what's his Mitch name? Hedberg. Thank you. Maybe not Love to the extent him. of Mitch Hedberg, Funny. but rest in peace. Right. Yeah. I mean, for sure. Pour out one mm-hmm. for Mitch. Anyway, I'm sorry. <laughs> but you know, still that's that you, you walk that line of that, uh, that dichotomy of feeling like if I can make people laugh, if I can push people away in that way, then I've won. I was so good at that. Right. Man, I was so good at that. My mouth was only designed to push people away because I didn't it was funny talking to Meredith about and uh, her like my whole story she knows all of it the good the bad and the ugly Mm -hmm. and talking to her early on in our marriage of how I would deliberately say the most vile thing to get you to get away from me Mm -hmm. but what I wanted more than anything was just for you to accept me such a crazy way that that's framed in my mind yeah um and I think, and I really do believe that a lot of it early, early on, I learned that my needs are not going to be met by anybody that's an adult, say, figure. And I, I learned, which I'm still trying to unpack, is that I'm the root or the cause of all the bad things that happen in your life. So it's kind of a twofold answer. I blame myself because that's what's going to happen anyway. So mm-hmm. let's just do it. Um, and let me get me before I get you. So if I can get you away from me, I don't have to deal with ultimately disappointing you. Like your expectations are not going to be met ever. And I know that I will eventually be the cause of something bad. So let's just let's just go ahead and blame Bob because that makes a lot of sense. Right. Well, and it's, I mean, because you already feel that way about yourself. Right. And so it's, it is that self-fulfilling prophecy, but it's like you you know about it. So now I, I do. Then I didn't. Right. Then I just thought that, I thought that was normal. Cuz my my so my dad is really funny. My dad has a really kind of witty, sarcastic kind of sense of humor, which is where I learned my sarcasm. And I you know me, I'm fairly sarcastic. You are very funny. But it can be really hurtful mm-hmm. when it's taken out of context. It's like sending a text you have no tonality behind it. You mm-hmm. don't see my facial expression. You don't. And if the people on the internet or on their iPod or on their iPhone or in the speakers of their car can see my hands, I'm very expressive. Mm-hmm. You don't get that in a text message. And thank goodness for GIFs and emojis because now we kind of get some context mm-hmm. to some things. But just the sarcasm in and of itself is typically and can be when I'm unhealthy, really unhealthy jabs at you which is ironic that I married a woman that is incredibly very forward and literal and black is black because black makes sense. Mm -hmm. But when you add somebody like me that's sarcastic, black could really mean white or blue or hot pink or whatever. Exactly. So I feel so like watching my dad 
model that when he would become uncomfortable or you know like the passive aggressive kind that's like well i'm gonna want you know are you scared to say something and then i'm gonna be passive aggressive about it because i really don't want you to do it but yeah sure if you think that's best for you go ahead and inside i really don't want you to but i'm afraid to be vulnerable and offer up the authentic answer Mm -hmm. because i know if i'm vulnerable through miss Brene brown and I love that woman. Oh yeah, and she's amazing. Hopefully, she's fans of tons of your listeners. And oh yeah, good. I mean, eventually she's gonna be on this podcast. If if Brian Brown it makes it here, I will find a way to be you somewhere. Can you become hold a boom mic for oh me. Oh my gosh, I will. <laughs> I will go clean diapers from your kid. I mean, I will do any. So anyway, I don't want to be too fanboy, but I will be a fanboy, and and it's fine. But like learning that behavior and and watching my dad be funny and like you know. I didn't know how to be vulnerable and then through finding Brene Brown and understanding, oh, vulnerability is uncertainty, emotional, mm-hmm. uh, ex- emotional exposure and risk. I mean, I didn't know what that was. I just thought it was, you know, if I feel uncomfortable, let's make a backhanded joke at it. And it really hurts you more than it hurts me, but I get it, you off my back. So that's what we should do. Right. So, and I think that, that I mean, that's, that's exactly what not only these kids that we're dealing with are going through. Um, but it's also what we go through often. I think that, you know, speaking from experience after you've been hurt by a kid and pushed away and uh, unmet expectations out the wazoo, mm-hmm. like all these right. things happening over and over and over again, it totally just becomes easier to deflect and not cope and not deal with things in a healthy way. Um, what would you say outside of, outside of not just Brene Brown, but more just like outside of understanding, what do you think in practice was the turning point for you? The turning point from for me in 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 understanding the this dichotomy and understanding you know the one side of the fence where you're like you know I'm being funny or I'm being sarcastic or I'm pushing away versus like hey I can still be funny and also be healthy mm-hmm. in practice. So there's two points to that answer. One is counseling, mm-hmm. without a doubt. I mean, I've been myself. I've been in counseling for four and a half years, I believe. I did two independent by myself mm-hmm. and now Meredith and I have been in couples counseling for yeah about two and a half years which side note you guys this is uh, I'm get on my soapbox here so stepping up pause <laughs> um couples counseling is not for couples in trouble it is for all couples it's like it it's Brian and I you and Meredith like it's just what we do right it's, we were in trouble Right. And we it, were, it can stem from that. But now, right. I mean, our counselor the other day was like, do you think maybe you want to go like every other week or like once a month? And we were like, <laughs> no. We got, the, we got that same question. We're healthy because of you. <laughs> right. Yeah. Meredith and I were faced with that exact same question in June. And here we are, October 1st. Holy crap. And yeah, I, I, they asked or he asked us, do you guys want to kind of slow your, your pace here? Give yourself some more breathing room. And I said, guy, I'm about to enter grad school. Um, (laughs) No. We can go from every other week to maybe every third week. But we are going to continue to build the connection that we don't have. I mean, we have, but it's it's weird. Like, you got to have, like, a deep trust with your spouse. Mm -hmm. And that's something that Meredith and I have fought for years on our own to trust those around us. We're highly skeptical people. Mm -hmm. And we're very, very anxious. Well, you're both sixes. Yes. Which like speaks for itself. Mm -hmm. But yeah. We're incredibly loyal, but we're also anxious and we're incredibly skeptical. Mm -hmm. And we know that the bad thing that's going to happen is right around the corner. So I have a plan for that. Yeah. So call me when the world falls apart, when it falls to pieces and I've got a plan. Yeah. You guys have an apocalypse plan. I've heard it. Right. (laughs) Yes. And it involves running to our mother-in-law's house and getting her anyway. I don't want to yeah. get off on that tangent. No, I mean, I'm sorry. And that was a sidebar on my part. I just used to, you talking about counseling and I had to get on my soapbox. Please. But anyway, yes. Counseling point number one. Soapbox. Okay. Yeah. Yes. And, and that's, that's really what saved our marriage. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's really what started to un- uncover a lot of, of, of pain within myself. Um, and so my first two years of going to counseling by myself with, a man that I will forever be grateful to the whole trajectory of my life from that point forward. I feel like I owe him a great debt. Um, showed me that there is a good reason why I behave the way I do, mm-hmm. but also reminded me that I have a whole lot of worth. Because early on, I thought I was worthless. I mean, mm-hmm. I would say, you probably heard me say that thousands of times, that I'm worthless, that 
that I have no real purpose, that I am better off dead than I am alive. And there were, you know, no, I know we'll get to self-deprecation le- later, mm-hmm. but there was a lot of self-deprecation wrapped up in how I protected myself. And so anyway, counseling helped a ton um, kind of unbox, unpack or expose m- the better side of me. Um, and there was another part to that question and I've already forgot it. What was the turning point for you in practice? I finally became aware of the pain I was causing on other people. Mm. I never, so I guess I maybe knew that some of my things that I was saying were hurtful, but I didn't know the extent into the damage that was done. Um, And I think being married opened that up. Um, I don't, I, I, I'm sure that I hurt the girlfriend I had before, before I got married. I had to have, I, I'm most certain of it. And if I could ever meet that woman again in real life, I would apologize to the nth degree because the person I am now hates the person or hates, despises the person that I once was. Um, but yeah, watching, watching my wife melt down because I'm being sarcastic and making backhanded jokes at her expense to get a laugh, air quotes again, a laugh and discharge my discomfort through the sarcasm onto her to get her off of my case. And I don't like to use that terminology, but, but that's a very kids from hard places terminology. Yeah. Get off of me. Right. You're, you make me so uncomfortable or what the expectation you've set forth makes me squirm at such high, I don't know the right word, but high intensity mm-hmm. that I don't, I A, don't have the capacity to formulate words in my limited vocabulary at the time mm-hmm. to put those words to my emotion. But I know I feel discomfort and I know I feel weird and I don't like it, so I'm going to push it all back on you, and I'm going to do it in a way that's, I think, is funny. Yeah. You you are very hurt now, and I didn't. I Early on, I didn't realize that's what I was doing, and, and, and I guess that's the part, too, is counseling awoke that in me. So here mm-hmm. I am awoke again, but then I watched my wife go into our bedroom and, and cry herself to sleep. Mm-hmm. And I would say, no, no, I'm just being funny. It's a joke. Don't you get the joke? And yeah, I get the joke. The joke's at my expense. And I didn't, Bobby didn't know that the joke was taking something very delicate within Meredith and insecurity maybe she had. And I'm exposing that through humor. And and she hasn't processed it. Or she's still rumbling with it. Or she is still very hurt by it. From her past baggage. Yeah. So I think when you when you marry those two, I, those two together of my own counseling and then watching the destruction that my mouth creates, mm-hmm. if I want things to be different, I have to choose to respond differently. Yeah. And so that would be my answer. Yeah. Well, and I mean, again, I, you're, you're, you're setting up really great segues in this interview, but I'm trained well. <laughs> You've trained me well. Uh, It helps to have a social work degree, I'm sure. Hi, I'm Aaron. And I'm Daniel. We're both fascinated by the creative people around us. They're the ones who give character and color to the world that we live in. That's why we host the podcast, Look What I Did, Conversations with Creators. We've had the opportunity to talk with world touring musicians, award-winning blacksmiths, Marvel comic book artists, movie directors, high-end furniture makers, and people who create things we've never even thought of. Look What I Did inspires us to be more creative in our personal lives, and we think it will be inspiring to you as well. Hear the stories of courage, failure, and eventually overcoming obstacles, even while facing down fear of the unknown. Look What I Did is content made with the whole family in mind. So whether you're looking to be inspired yourself or trying to understand the newfound passion of a child in your home, our show is one you can listen to as a family and fuel your creative side while learning more about how the creative world around you has come to be. Learn more at lookwhatidid.net. Um, so, you know, we're, we're talking about other, you know, outside of yourself. Um, 
and taking those things that you're seeing, you know, I, you're taking an insecurity and you're making it funny, um, turning that inward, you know? So I think that you've started to see what you're doing to other people. At what point did you see what you were doing to yourself when you were taking an insecurity in you and you were exploiting it in a funny way so that you didn't have to deal with it? Or would you even phrase it that way? I think that, and I don't know if I'm, if I will answer the question, but something, and I hope I can with this answer is that when I would turn my humor on myself mm-hmm. and I would be super self-deprecating or I would be the first one to cut my legs out from underneath me, it was, again, a ploy to get you away. But I didn't realize that until, until I, it, and correct me if I'm, or, or get me back on the rails if I'm going in the wrong direction, but through counseling, I began to understand how my self-deprecation was a direct reflection of my unhealth mm-hmm. inside. And it was honestly through Cassidy Andrew Harris, our worship leader. Yeah. And I played music with that guy for over a decade. And he has gone through his own incredible transformation. And he was in like the infant stages of his counseling and I mean, him and I used to just butt his. I mean, we <laughs> we had it out at the church one day that I cannot say on this microphone what we said to one to one another. <laughs> but he came to this realization that he had some stuff that he's got to work through. And so when he was working through his yuck before I started counseling, he started catching my aroma of self-deprecation and my inward destruction of how much I hated myself. Mm-hmm. And so he pulled me aside one day and said, I mean, you were really self-deprecating. Like you have said nothing positive about yourself today. You've complained about everything from your playing to your, Anyway, like we just wrapping that up within music. And so I was never really aware of that, Mm -hmm. that I had used myself as the butt of every joke. Because early on when I was in grade school, I can remember lots of times like it was yesterday where I would use myself as the butt of the joke to get laughs from people in the class. And I took that as, oh, they really like me. They like what I have to say. They enjoy my jokes. But maybe they really just felt bad for the guy that was destroying his own self-image because of the lack of self-worth I had in myself mm-hmm. um, or how low self-esteem I had. And so really that experience with Cass showing me how self-deprecating I was, coupled that with counseling, sitting on a couch again by myself and this incredible man that, that <laughs> unlocked so much about who I am, mm-hmm. allowed me to, to access... Bobby, if you are unhealthy and you will begin to do X, Y, and Z, and I've kind of built those up as like barriers in my mind that if I'm hitting those things, that means something needs to change because I'm starting to veer off the cliff of unhealth. But that self-deprecation that like, let's, let's jab Bobby first comes from that place. It was only reinforced again from when I was really young Mm -hmm. and Again, I believe that I was the source of all of your problems. And by your problems, I mean my mom's problems or my dad's problems or whatever. Which is a lot for a small child. I mean, that's... (laughs) Yeah. I I feel like that doesn't even have to be said. But like... That's incredibly uh, traumatizing. I mean, that's... Sure. Again, I can't find like a... I don't know. Another adjective. Right. Like... Can you pull up a thesaurus real quick? (laughs) I do have a computer right here. Uh Um, But I mean, I think that it's a vicious cycle because then that reinforces that all you're good for is a laugh mm-hmm. and that yes. it has to be at your expense. And yes. then all you're good for is a laugh. And I mean, just that. Vicious and I was cycle. funny. Yeah. And you're still, I mean, yeah, you, yeah. And people like to laugh. Now I know laughter releases dopamine, which helps us calm ourselves, which helps reward your brain. And we all like rewards. Mm-hmm. So, excuse me. So thinking of the releases of, of the dopamine and getting excited and, and you know, the, the reward centers in our brain, getting the laugh. I thought that that's, that was my identity is to be the funny guy. And I think that, you know, when we're, when we're talking about taking this back to your job and what you're seeing, um, what you're seeing on a day-to-day basis in these kids. And I'm sure that there's a part of you that's like, bro, I invented this. Like you're not, you're not oh, you're up. not pulling something fast. Even today, <laughs> and I'll, I, 
I can, the, the example I have for today, there was some kid that I was, I asked for a piece of paper back from him and he handed me like his folder and it was like flipped inside out or something goofy. And I took it and I made it as it should. Cause I was collecting these pieces of paper and he stood in front of me and laughed and said, got you. Yeah. And I said, bro, what did you get me? And <laughs> You're he like, said, Good one. he's like, Oh, you fell for my joke. And I said, I fell for what joke? And then as I kept going, he realized he had made something in his mind that was hilarious that wasn't funny to me. And I always walk away from those situations and I go, that kid needs strong influence mm -hmm. and I've got my eye on you. Not that I'm the savior and going to fix it, but I know, especially him being a male, that he's trying to find his identity right now. And this was a ninth grader. He's trying to find his voice. He's trying to find acceptance. He's trying to find understanding. Mm -hmm. And I don't know this. I don't know this, but I could probably assume his lifestyle. I could assume his home life. I could assume based upon lots of other statistical data that I have to back up lots of things, the way he's living at home and what he's exposed to that it's not healthy. And, and kids are going to be kids and they're going to make jokes and it's at, at no harm to anyone. But when you're trying to get an adult by being goofy or silly, when you're a ninth grader, mm -hmm. you're just looking for that acceptance. And there are so many times I'll sit in the front of a classroom and I'll say something and I can spot the clown. I can smell the clown. Yeah. I know the clown. And he is going to say something because more often it's a male than a female. He's going to say something to me. And I can think, how do I respond here? I have a hundred different ways to do it, but what is the best one? And I hopefully, when I'm, at, when I'm healthy, can respond in a way that, that fosters love and, and grace and connection and to catch that student because I know what they're doing. Yeah. Because I am capital C clown and I was the clown and I was the class clown and I... I don't wear that title as like a badge of honor, but I know it so forward and backward so well. Mm -hmm. And where that typically comes from is just from a kid that's saying, love me. Yeah. Accept me. All I want is to know that I have your approval. And if I have that approval, I can rest easy. And I think, I mean, that's such a unique perspective because again, you know, I coming from my perspective, I know this in practice having learned, you know, the hard way. And you also know this having learned the hard way, but yours is from experience, not practice. You know, yours is from, um, I feel like I'm using weird terms, but I mean, you know, this firsthand, I know the secondhand. And again, that gives you such a unique perspective to help these kids, mm -hmm. but also to see it in yourself, because I'm sure that that's been really, uh, instrumental in your own healing journey to see this mirrored. Sure. And also that was another thing that we were going to talk about was, uh, seeing these reminders on a day-to-day -day basis of what unhealthy versus healthy looks like for you. Yeah. And now that you are in a stressful situation, you know, you, uh, mm -hmm. we've already covered, you have like no free time. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, what are some of those, you know, pinpricks on your trauma that signa uh, signify, you know, Hey, I'm, I'm headed for a bad place or, um, I'm not looking good. And I asked this question because a lot of us parents, you know, we, we feel like we're, we're, we're on the search for like, how can I see? I don't understand what's going on. I don't understand these warning signals that I'm supposed to be mm -hmm. looking out for, but this kid just seems like he's being funny or whatever. Sure. So what are those things for you? Oh, um, well, so self-deprecation mm -hmm. when I am the first to say something really nasty about myself or make a joke at my own expense. That's one where I know I'm, I'm, I'm beginning to, enter the darkness. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, and with my time that I currently don't have, where you work a full-time job and then you come home and you work another full-time job, which is grad school, and then you try to thoughtfully and carefully still participate in all your extra, other extracurriculars. Um, Self-care is, for me, that's always been the first thing to go Yeah, if I'm really overwhelmed or if I'm really capital B busy. And I feel like we use that stinking term as a term of endearment in our culture is oh, just yeah. so busy. I'm so busy. I'm so busy. It's like you're, you have a busy trophy. No, you have poor boundaries, right. bottom line. Well, that's <laughs> where so, our worth is tied. And that's yeah, really sad. We find our identity in it. Mm -hmm. We we want to be known as the busiest, most productive society. And yeah. we are that. And we're also the most unhealthy whether it be physically unhealthy or mentally unhealthy. Yeah. We got so, them both covered. 
Yeah, right. We we win it both, and we get to carry that busy trophy. Way yay, America. Right. Whatever. So, if I'm if I'm self deprecation self deprecating, and I'm being mean to myself, there's one. Um, another one that that I know that I'm starting to enter kind of a dark space is I love food. I love to cope with unhealthy, gratuitous amounts of food. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, if you ever see me like in a bag of chips and it's mostly gone, it's because I want to I want to numb my pain. Mm-hmm. Um, another one that I really enjoy is um, sitting and being and being um, what's the word sloth like, like doing nothing. Yeah, like zoning out on the television or playing on my phone. Your baseball game. I love baseball. I really love baseball. Like <laughs> sports to me is a, not a way to numb because I'm so emotionally amped up and in, especially when it's Razorback anything. Yeah. Um, but if it's televised and it's hogs of some capacity, I'm going to watch it and then I'm going to get amped up about it. So that's hard for me to like downshift into I'm emotionally unhealthy. But if I spend like a whole Saturday watching football games about or watching teams that I don't care about. Hmm. Why are you doing this? Well, you're avoiding the hard. Yeah. You're avoiding the need. You're avoiding what needs to be done. Um, and it's so, and it, like working on my computer, it's so easy for me to open up another tab and pull up YouTube. And I don't know if you've told your listeners or not, but I play the drums. And so playing music is a great outlet and it's a healthy outlet. But when I've watched four hours of nothing but drumming videos on YouTube. Oh, that sounds so boring. Yeah. And it's so fun. <laughs> it's so fun to watch all these dudes that I've idolized and like they're learning these new chops. And I'm like, yeah, I'm going to totally learn that in some song I'm about to play. No, I'm never going to play that. But it's fun to numb and then to not mm-hmm. engage with the reality that waits on the other side. Yeah. So those are probably my three favorite are food and the Internet and being mean to myself. Mm-hmm. Which I mean, again, it, it, it's it's such a mirror thing for us as adoptive parents is that when we, you know, when we see this in uh, our kids, I'm about to use an analogy that's so youth group. It's, um, but you know, if you're standing on a table and someone's on the floor, it's so much easier for them to pull you off the table than for you to pull them up on the table. You've heard this, yes? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. So I mean, it's easy for us to go down and sure. And become unhealthy versus Mm -hmm. working really hard to get someone onto a healthy stage. And so, um, or state. So to be on the lookout for these things in ourselves, as well as seeing them in, in the kids that we're working with. And again, I know that that's, you know, you're, you're facing your trauma all day, every day. So you, you know, you're dealing with this in a very unique situation, just like we are as Mm -hmm. adoptive parents. Um, but yeah, I think that, there's, I don't know, there's so many lessons to be learned here just in, um, I don't know what, what trauma is and the psychology behind humor, which is super fascinating to me, um, and masking versus coping and just all these things. And I, I mean, I'm just basically sure, summing you, up what we're talking about, but yeah, you got to write that. You're, you're right that the line is very thin. Mm-hmm. You know, I've gone to several continuing ed things to keep up with my license where there is a certified humor therapist in Northwest Arkansas and watching her give presentations and watching her speak. It's incredibly enlightening mm-hmm. um, because I want to, I take some of that with me when I go work with my students uh, because who doesn't like to laugh? Who doesn't like to cut up? Who doesn't like to have a less a, like weighty conversation? Yeah. Um, but it's also like being relatable is another great way to help kind of break down some of those barriers for your students um, and for your adoptive children. Cause you're not given a book. Wouldn't it be easier if the kids that you had that were in foster care came to your door as a social worker is standing next to them and saying, hey, we just had to pull these kids at a really violent environment. They got to stay with you for two weeks and we'll see you tomorrow. We'll touch base tomorrow and it's 3 a.m. Wouldn't it be nice if they also handed you their user manual? Yeah. Of course. And they give you like all their immunization records, but that's not helpful. (laughs) Cool. You don't have uh, hepatitis or you don't have, you know, you've had the MMR. Cool. Right. But there's, yeah, there's so many gaps in those. Oh my gosh. I have so many immunization records. Right. And you know those way better than I do. (laughs) Yeah. But I also want to use, and you could apply that to marriage. You could apply. Oh, yeah. (laughs) It's endless. It's endless. Yes. Uh, But okay. You cool with getting into some of these closing questions? Sure. 
Hit me. All right. So, and we're specifically uh, looking at these questions through the lens of your healing journey and your experience working with kids from hard places. Mm -hmm. And also, I mean, not that you work with their parents, but just seeing their home life through your unique lens. So what do you wish you had known at the beginning of all of this? Of the beginning of the career that I've chosen or the beginning of my life? (laughs) (laughs) I would say the beginning of your healing journey. What would I wish I would have known? That's a good question because, and I like whenever you've, you offer up a question and the person doesn't have a responsive answer and their response to you is, that's a really good question. <laughs> that means it's not canned. That's good. I'll take right. it. Right. That means I need to think about it for more than a hot second. I can move on to the next question if you would like and we can circle back. Sure. Yeah. Okay. I love circling back. What do you wish you had done differently? I really wish that I would have taken to heart what the people that really loved me said to me. Mm. And I was so wrapped up in insecurity and in self-destructive behavior and my own self-destructive tendencies that I didn't want to slow down long enough to think they really love and care about me here. I probably should listen to them. But you couldn't. Yeah, right. I didn't have the capacity for that. Mm -hmm. And if I'm honest, I still sometimes don't have that capacity. And when I'm really, when I'm starting to enter unhealth, I'm always going to be the glasses half full and then, or half empty, excuse me. And then somehow the glasses got knocked over and then you ran over the glass and now there's water and and glass everywhere. And yes, (laughs) right. That's my, that when I'm in default mode, That is my default, super pessimist to the core. But I've been taught to be a pessimist. I've been told that mm-hmm. the sunny side of life doesn't exist. But if I could if I could go back in time and like grab younger me by the shoulders and just say, look, people love you. Stop fighting this mm-hmm. and really just try what they're giving. What just try what they're offering. And to see how your life will turn out moderately different. I mean, yeah. you move that 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 level from like surface to an inch and you do that enough times that inch becomes a mile and that mile becomes a huge, huge distance. And I'm not a math whiz, so I'm not going to go into it, but just really listen to those people. Yeah. Mm, that's good. Okay. So what is your favorite way that your people, I'm talking about the people who know you best have supported you? My favorite way, right. To be supported or my say that again. What's your favorite way that your people have supported you through so, your healing journey? Quality time. If you're talking about love languages, yeah. let's talk about love languages. Quality time. Mm-hmm. When you give me quality time and you let me talk and you don't put filters on it and you don't make me button up my mouth and you don't make me button up my crazy analogies or my wild explanations of things and you let me talk with my hands, I feel that fills me up so much. Yeah. And if you put that next to a cold evening and a bonfire and a hoppy cold beverage, I I feel so loved there. Yeah. And when I get those moments, man, I just I cherish them. I really do. Yeah. Because they don't come often enough. Well, and I know, I mean, one of my husband's favorite moments like that was with you and another one of our Same. friends. Um I think there's something really beautiful about that. And like I like to call that ash heaping to take it back to biblical terms, like what Job's friends did with him, where they just sat and like, let him just be who he was yeah. in that, that moment. Yes. And they didn't try to fix it. They didn't try to change. They didn't try to talk circles around it. They just let him be. And yeah. I don't know. There's something really beautiful about if that. If you can turn me loose to my mind and let me run as far and back and as wide and vast and not ask me to be quiet or don't use those words or you don't put God in a box or whatever, Mm -hmm. man, that'll win with me every time. So on the flip side of that, what is, what's the worst way to support, support in air quotes, someone like you? The worst way to support me is to not give me that, that, that arena Mm. is to not give me that is to like cut me off is to, if I'm really honest, which why not, what's the consequence, speak for me. When you Ooh. speak for me and you don't give me the ability to offer up my thought, I lose my mind. Mm. 
And that's not like I not you nobody. I see I get all jumbled up because there's so many <laughs> words I want to say at once and I can't. Um, it's like having four really great shirts. You can only wear one at a time. When you have four really great words, you can only say one at a time. So when people speak for me or on my behalf or think for me or make decisions for me or don't give me the ability to offer up something like that, that's how you can really not love me well. Yeah, but I think that, I mean, that that's some good eyes for the kids in our house. Um, just giving them that voice, even if it's, even if it doesn't seem necessary or even if they, you don't think that they'll handle it well or just whatever, all the right. excuses. But I think, I mean, that's, that's a great perspective. That's what we want to do as parent. Well, I'm not a parent. When I've worked with children. When Jax is acting. Or, right. <laughs> yeah. I know what I'm about to say is probably super contradictory because I don't have kids. So uh, judge me I think you I think you have some sort of badge based on your. Okay. So I have like a little <laughs> bit of buy-in with a parent that can say, if you are going to not offer your child the ability to speak or act for him or herself, and you are going to do what you think is in their best interest, mm-hmm. get ready because it's going to all come undone and you're going to have to deal with a meltdown. And I know as a parent, you believe in their best interest. I mean, I take 50 kids on a charter bus for three days every summer to see colleges across what is Arkansas, Missouri, Kansas, Oklahoma, et cetera. And I feel like I've adopted a teenager, 55 teenagers for three days. I bet that bus smells awful. It smells awful, (laughs) awful. But thank goodness for air conditioning and the constant circulation, right? So we don't have to smell myself or the other boys and girls on that bus. But when you don't give them the opportunity to give their say and you think and i get you're doing you think you're doing it for their betterment Mm -hmm. but how do you like what's the golden rule like love somebody the way that you would want to be loved and then the platinum or and then the platinum rule is loving somebody the way that they would want to be loved instead of right have you ever heard that before no all right it's groundbreaking i know a podcast original right that can be the extras oh yeah the, the Patreon. The Patreon. I was going to say, somebody's <laughs> going to pay for this, right? So for the Patreon members out there, you're so anyway, yeah, not to love them the way that you want to be loved, but loving them the way that they want to be loved and giving them the option to give their say, even if they're 17 and they make stupid decisions. Yeah. I'm 32 and still make stupid decisions. I know 17-year-old, I watch it, yeah. making stupid boneheaded decisions. But again, they're doing what they think is best. But you take that away from them fire and boss <laughs> she get past him and down the stairs he was probably playing video games <laughs> oh, okay anyway um they make stupid decisions yes yeah yeah it's dumb. I mean, it's like, so you have fight or flight or freeze or all the other F's that they've now added to that when yes. I just, I know it's fight or flight or freeze mm-hmm. um Anyway, you're going to see your kid do all of that when you speak for them and not give them the ability to say, actually, mom or dad or whomever, I want to, and I don't know what they call you, you know, like I've known some adopt, uh, like foster kids call the man and the woman, mom and dad, or by their first name, or they give them a cute title like mentor or whatever. And it's like, the reality of it is, is that we're so much more, Mm -hmm. you're so much more and I mean, I've got a little toe in the adoption arena where my in-laws are adoption hall of famers where they've had like <laughs> nine kids at their house at one Oh, moment. you know what? I haven't even made that connection because, uh, you know, guest of the show, Ashley Routine, this is his, this is her brother-in-law. Whoop, whoop. There we go. Full circle. Yeah. Right. So being a part of that environment and watching kids that got pulled from their bio family 24 hours ago mm-hmm. and now they're in the living room of my in-laws. And Meredith and I have come over to eat pizza that was ordered by my my wife's family just to support them. I mean, and we don't do enough. If I'm honest with you, we could do far more. But everybody has a different bucket size. Mm-hmm. And our buckets are a little smaller. And so we have to love them as much as we can, as much as we have the ability. Because, And I guess if I can say something before we wrap up, like the one thing that I learned is that you can't love others unless you can love yourself. And something that I did a really, really bad job was loving myself. So how mm-hmm. do I pour from an empty cup, right? How do I go to my in-laws house that have three bios and, and one adopted and that they have currently two fosters, but at any time they've had up to four fosters. How do I love them? Well, when I can't love myself Yeah. or I've got to take care of my family and we've got to work through some stuff before we can go love them. Yeah. That's just, you just can't do that. 
and and knowing the and seeing what Ashley and Luke have, have been through is is hard. And I want to crawl in the pit and just lock arms with them and and let them know that even when words I can't say hit the fan, I still love you and I still want to care for you. And I know that it's hard right now. And there are some people that don't quite understand what you're doing, but you believe it's going to be worth it. So I believe it's going to be worth it. Yeah. Well, I think that's a great answer to that first question. Just what do you wish you had known at the beginning? Just that it has to, you know, you can't fall from an empty cup. Yeah. Um, okay. Uh, if you could sum it all up, what is your greatest piece of advice or encouragement for adoptive families in the trenches? Hmm. Greatest piece of advice or encouragement or encouragement. Um, my greatest piece of encouragement would be to take care of yourself. Mm. Find respite if you need it. Say no if you need to. And a person that is a perfectionist and a people pleaser and saying no is almost like one of the worst things you could ever do. Learning how to say no is incredibly, incredibly life-giving. And, and do that and be okay with that and know that it's going to make some people get prickly, but... Say no and know your boundaries. Holy cow. Know your limits. Mm. Know what you, and if you don't know them, then take a journal and go get your favorite beverage and go sit out on a cool fall evening and learn about yourself and know what your capacities are. And if you have a, a phone, if your phone rings at 2 a.m. and they got kids that just got pulled out of a bio home because dad or mom is crazy and they're in jail, whatever, whatever, and you are at your limit, say no and it's gonna hurt and I work with you know, doing stuff on the benevolent side of the grove saying no when somebody says hey can you pay my rent or can you get me a gift card or hey can you meet me here to put gas in my car or, hey can you get us groceries or diapers or whatever and I have to say no because we don't have that that rips my guts out mm -hmm. to say no to do that but whenever you say no to take care of yourself you're going to, it's, it's, oh my gosh, what an incredible thing to take care of yourself. So then you could, so you can take care of other people. Yeah. So know that, I mean, I, again, I'm not a dad, I'm not a bio dad, I'm not an adoptive dad, and I'm not going to dare say taking care of dogs is like taking care of human beings. Cause I know that's <laughs> truly different. Um, Oscar Nunez. Take, yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But take care for crying out loud, take care of yourself Yeah. and reach out and ask for help. And know who your supports are. Identify them. And make their make those people aware of it. Mm -hmm. I think we like to think in our mind, okay, so I can call, you know, whomever at whatever time of day. And then you call them and you can't get in touch with them. Or you're having a panic moment and they're having a meltdown with one of theirs or they're unavailable. Like set the expectation. Like you are going to be on my short list. And Brene Brown talks about this. And then I'll shut up about Brene Brown. But probably <laughs> not. She says take a one inch by one inch piece of paper. And write down like three or four names of people that you can call when your life is on fire. Mm -hmm. Make these people aware that they're on the list. But you have to do your due diligence as an individual to know who those people are. Yeah. So what was it? Build a support network. Know your support network. Identify your support network. Know your limits and say no. Because what you're doing is incredible work. Bringing in children that don't belong to you. And loving them like they're yours. Children that you didn't ask to put on be put on this earth. Children that you had no say at their timing of creation. And now they're here. And you want to love them like they're your own. That's so brave. That's so brave. And I can't, I can't, I can't put myself there. Like I want to find an empathic response, like digging up into my own to be able to give. A tr like, but that's like as heartfelt and sincere as I can get. You're brave, and know that people love you and care for you, and that's why I love being in supper club with you, and yeah. being a part of that, and being a part of that support group. So we can see you at your worst, and we can see you at your best, and we can see you at the middle, and we can see you when you're teetering, and we get to know one another, and you're doing something, and I can pull you aside. I've noticed this you. What's going on? Mm -hmm. like I'm drowning over here I say alright well let me be the life raft and let me help you so so that that would be my answer so much good stuff <laughs> like oh my gosh that's the quote for sure um oh goodness okay so you're not on the socials even though your name is on the socials 
True. I'm not on social media. They're one of those super cool couples that has a joint Facebook account. Right. So my mom can have pictures of <laughs> Meredith and I doing things together, which in reality, it's just Meredith posting. Re- you don't retweet on Facebook, but you re... Yeah, it's mostly like Young Living stuff and dog stuff. Okay. Yeah, that's all her. <laughs> I get on it whenever she tells me to get on it, and then I forget about it. And then... So people like will reach out needing me to like do something or wanting to show me a funny drummer gif or even there have been people in benevolence that have hit me up for mm-hmm. stuff through there and she's the one in charge of it, not me. Yeah. Well, your name does come first right. on, on the listing. So, but where, where can we actually follow you? Um, in my life. Okay. <laughs> hey, you know what? Good, in, good answer. Get them. I mean, really like if, if people want me, then come find me i mean i'm i feel like i'm everywhere but i'm also dm nowhere. me i'll give you his number I'll yeah that's, like i would rather you text <laughs> me that's way more um what's the word like connecting Genuine, authentic yeah whatever. thank you that's that's a way more just text me yeah i don't I, that's why another big reason i have social media well there's several reasons and that's maybe for another podcast sure but it it really hurt me long ago mm-hmm. and that played into my not good enough Mm-hmm. is that I was watching people that were having, quote unquote, air quotes again, next to the microphone, a better life than me, mm-hmm. when in reality, they were just posting what was really cool and interesting at the time. And so I thought I was less because I wasn't on tour or I wasn't in the studio or I wasn't doing this thing or this thing because yeah, that's just not the way that this, my life story is. It's good self-awareness. So I no social media for me. Yeah, cool. Well, uh, if you would like to get in touch with Bobby, reach out to me. But... Thank you, Mr. Uh, Billy Bob Reeves. You're welcome. Thanks for having for me. For lending your voice, for sure. I'm sorry this was four hours long. <laughs> you can edit this, right? It's just, most of this is grammar. Just kidding. <laughs> right. This is all for Patreon. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to the Adoptive Mom Podcast. I hope you found encouragement here. I need you to know that you are enough and you're doing a great job. We are all in this together and I am over here cheering you on. Don't forget to check out show notes for this episode and other resources at theadoptivemompodcast.com. Thanks for joining us.